Hey, welcome to Assorted Goods. I'm Dan Felton, your host. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode as we take another curious look at the world around us. I hope you're doing well out there. This year is somehow blowing right past us again, like they always seem to. It's already a couple weeks into February. Sheesh, where does the time go? This episode, we're taking a look at a growing movement amongst retail workers and something that may be a sign of what's to come. I'm talking about the developing unionization effort of Starbucks employees across North America and how this movement may be the early days of a big swing towards more worker organization in the future. It's a bit of a look at history developing in the moment we're living in and how it relates to the history of labor movements of the past. So without any more preamble, grab your grande iced white chocolate mocha, collect those Starbucks points, find a cozy spot, and let's just get going with this episode. Assorted Goods is produced by Disinformed Media in association with Verboten Productions. Promotional support comes from the Always Up Network at DeanBlundell.com. For many, many years, I resisted the cult of Starbucks. I'm usually a bit of a contrarian, so I actively rejected the big, fancy coffee shop with the weird names. I mean, what was wrong with small, medium, and large? Come on. But then one day, I converted to the church of the green and white mermaid lady. Actually, the woman in the logo is apparently a siren, the ancient characters of Greek mythology that lure sailors in with their irresistible songs in order to run their boats into rocks. I feel like there's some kind of metaphor in there for the company, but we'll move on. Starbucks is a cultural monolith, more than just a coffee house. It's a place where people will spend hours doing homework, socializing, or writing the script for a podcast episode. And its drinks are addictive on top of that. Like, actually addictive. A 2016 article from Wired detailed the combination of sugar, salt, saturated fats, and caffeine, and how they come together to create a dopamine hit to our brains that always makes us come back for more, and has parallels to the effects that drugs have on the human brain, which is unsurprising if you know how delicious some of those drinks can be. Mm, yummy. People just love shelling out a little extra money for that sugar-loaded coffee with a fancy-sounding name. The marketing strategy of the company has worked so well over the decades that as of November of 2021, it has over 33,000 stores in 80 countries. The allure of the siren song is strong indeed. But all the while, as the company has reached unimaginable success and wealth from the days of being a small coffee house in Seattle, it's still, pretty simply, a retail chain of stores. Now, it should be pointed out that Starbucks in the past year and a half or so has made an effort to increase the wages of their employees or as they like to call them, their partners. Why do companies like creating these friendlier-sounding titles for their employees? I don't know. I'm sure there's a strategy behind that, too. In December of 2020, Starbucks committed to raising its wage floor to $15 an hour in America, way up from the $8.75 an hour workers were making in 2013, which is solid, although $15 an hour, although being maybe a national target for the minimum wage, still doesn't really keep up with the cost of living and now, of course, inflation as well. But according to Starbucks' own statements, the company will also aim to have wages in the $15 to $23 an hour range in 2022, depending on the worker's tenure with the company and the market that they're working in. The company also offers health and dental benefits, a 401k plan for their employees as well. And over recent years, the company has taken steps to create a perception of being a more progressive and inclusive employer, an image that has its benefits to the business, of course, too. It's always got to do with the branding, somehow, some way. On the spectrum of retail businesses, Starbucks isn't near the bottom of the barrel in terms of how it treats their employees, and it's an image they try to maintain. 
It's not like Starbucks is the only company putting on a show for the public either. Now, over the past year, something else has been brewing at Starbucks besides the really overpriced coffees. And allow me to declare right now off the bat, like any topic I dive into here on Assorted Goods, I do my best to be level-headed and objective with the stories that we touch on. And unionization is something that can be a hot-button issue for a lot of people. I myself have worked both as a member of a union, although for a short period of time, and as a regular non-unionized private sector employee as well. Personally, I think unions have great value to give to workers, especially workers in high-stress or high-risk or low-pay industries. And I also recognize that unions can have downsides too. Like anything and everything on planet Earth, unions are a mixed bag depending on the scenario, the situation, and most of all, the people who are involved. Now, in October of 2021, three Starbucks stores in Buffalo, New York, formed a union called Starbucks Workers United after years of issues with working conditions, scheduling and staffing problems, and difficulty being able to take paid sick time. The issue of sick days especially has become amplified by the pandemic, unsurprisingly. In December, the stores voted on unionization. One store was successful by a vote of 19 to 8, and at the same time at the other two Buffalo Starbucks locations, one voted unsuccessfully by a 12 to 8 vote, and another failed, but with a legal contest being put forward by the union stating that most of the no votes were by non-regular employees. A review by the National Labor Relations Board found that challenge to be successful, and the second Buffalo store's vote was ruled in favor of unionization by a vote of 15 to 9. Seven votes against were challenged and declared ineligible during the review. Now, the dominoes have fallen. And as of this recording, over 60 stores in 19 American states have filed petitions for union elections. Oddly enough, the Buffalo stores weren't actually the first to unionize in North America. Here in Canada, in Victoria, B.C., the Starbucks location voted to unionize in 2020, with employees being backed by the United Steelworkers Union. Their collective bargaining agreement was ratified in the summer of last year, which is impressive, since just because a union vote is successful doesn't mean that an agreement will be met and ratified. Another piece of this puzzle that we'll get back to going forward. Also, a store in Calgary, Alberta up here has filed for unionization as well with the United Steelworkers Union. So this movement exists beyond just America's borders already. Now, the thing is, in the United States, there are around 9,000 Starbucks stores. So about 60 filing for unionization is barely a drop in the bucket or barely a drop in the grande coffee cup, something like that. But these things take time. And it's likely that this is just the beginning. But why the push for unionization at Starbucks of all places? I mean, there's got to be worse places to work with worse working conditions. So let's stop and see what Starbucks workers have said is their reasons for this organizational push. Interviews with workers at the Buffalo area Starbucks locations found that their issue isn't along the lines of there being some sort of, say, terrible, abusive scenarios. You know, this union effort isn't birthed out of the same kind of working conditions of, say, 100 years ago when, for example, factory or railroad workers were tired of literally risking life and actual limbs. But just because the physical danger isn't there in the same way as it was a long time ago doesn't mean that there isn't a sentiment driving this union push. Staffing is one point of contention for these Starbucks workers. And the pandemic has exposed the ability of a lot of these stores to keep their staffing situation stable. Starbucks despite being a pretty decent employer in the retail industry, does still have a high rate of turnover with their employees. And as anybody will ever tell you who's worked in any sort of shift work job like this, if there's not enough people there to do the job, that doesn't mean there's not going to still be the high number of customers coming in or the high number of orders. Everything just has to get done by less people. 
increasing the amount of work stress that they take on. But there's also the obvious, that despite a higher minimum wage being implemented by Starbucks, it still doesn't allow people to make a living wage. Numerous workers state that even though Starbucks is a solid job in a lot of ways, they still have to work multiple jobs to make ends meet or support their families. An interview with some Starbucks workers in Cleveland, Ohio, found that the pro-union workers there felt that they were not being adequately trained before being sent to work on the floor alone, along with not being able to make enough to afford to live in the very community where their store is located. They also cited safety concerns over the pandemic, claimed that management had asked employees to work even if they had been potentially exposed to COVID, and how tough it is for them to get some paid sick time when they need it. Further interviews with employees at other Starbucks locations find similar ideas of why they are beginning to lean towards forming a union. So there are the basic reasons, you know, scheduling, staffing, sick days, the kinds of things that unions have fought for and changed the standards of for decades. And there's, of course, the financial side of it all. People simply feel like they're just falling behind the cost of living, and now obviously inflation is making that worse. But Starbucks is a massively wealthy and successful corporation with a bulk of their workforce struggling to get by in the modern world. But what so much of this all seems to come back to is something even more basic. These employees simply want a voice. They want a say in what goes on in their workplaces. They want a seat at the table to solve the problems I just mentioned, not to have to file a complaint and then hope that the corporate offices do something about it, but to actually have enough influence to collaborate with corporate management and effectively create changes. It's the same sentiment that I touched on a few months ago in an episode where we were talking about the Great Resignation and millions of people quitting their jobs, it's not just about money or benefits. And thinking it's all about numbers undermines the underlying principle. It's a matter of dignity and of feeling valued beyond just monetary compensation. In Starbucks' case, they make a point to call their employees partners. But there's an obvious irony of using that word while simultaneously not including these people in any relevant decision-making processes. A partner is someone you collaborate with, that you share ideas with and compromise with in order to create outcomes that are the best for everyone involved. Maybe Starbucks screwed themselves a little bit with that clever little name for their workers after all. Ah, I love some classic irony. But look, whether you're pro or anti-union, it's hard to argue against those things. People just wanting to have a dignified quality of life and to feel like they're actually valued. Or maybe none of that sounds good to you and you just really don't like other human beings, in which case, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of wonderful Facebook groups out there that you're able to join in on. But there's also the reality of companies like Starbucks who may give off an air of being progressive. But again, that's just the perception, not the hard, legally binding reality of it all. In an article for Forbes, Errol Schweitzer, former vice president of grocery for Whole Foods, another company that had a very progressive angle to their public relations, made that exact point. And I'll read his quote directly. Quote, I learned this the hard way at Whole Foods, that we had a lot of really progressive policies, but the company changed, did layoffs, and took away a lot of that stuff because none of it was legally guaranteed. It was just their preference to give us those things. You need something in writing. If you want to keep what you already have, and if you want to get more, you definitely need it legally binding, end quote. He makes a hell of a point. A company telling you that you are family or calling you partners or telling you how much they value you means nothing because it really is nothing if there isn't something tangible that makes that supposed value a reality. But where things get dicey 
and where a movement for unionization starts to get even more traction isn't just in the initial push for higher quality of working conditions, but what gives these movements some real staying power over and over again is the way that companies usually react to the efforts to unionize. Union busting and disruption from corporations facing a union effort is a battle as old as our industrial world is. When union efforts start, companies fight back, and Starbucks has been no different. Side note, as I was writing this part of the script, I was in fact actually drinking a strawberry lemonade from, yes, Starbucks. I know, I know, I'm a Starbucks scab, apparently, but it's the truth. Now, this isn't exactly the late 19th, early 20th century time periods where violent incidents were common regarding union efforts and worker strikes. For example, the Haymarket Strike of 1886, the Homestead Strike of 1892, or the events of the Harlan County War, for example, of the 1930s. By the way, the story of Harlan County, Kentucky is actually a really wild one. It runs deep in that community and the effects of the war of the 1930s between union organizers and the coal mining companies there actually still stems up into the modern day. It's crazy. But anyways, the working conditions that workers deal with now aren't as severe. And on the flip side, the response by companies aren't quite as rash. But just because it's all more mild than it used to be doesn't invalidate the issues of today. Times change. And so does the context of what's going on. When workers at those Buffalo Starbucks locations made the move to unionize, the company apparently began sending managers from other locations, along with higher level management team members, to spend time in the Buffalo area stores, apparently just there to help with the daily work. But as the employees at those stores have noted, these newcomers often questioned the regular employees about their union efforts and what their opinions were on the matter. One member of the Starbucks Workers United in Buffalo, Barista Casey Moore, detailed one incident where a pro-union employee left informational pamphlets in the employee break room for anybody to read and take, which then disappeared immediately after some of those higher-level management team members made their way around the store for an afternoon. Then there's the story of Brittany Harrison, a manager from an Arizona Starbucks location, who testified to the National Labor Relations Board and the Buffalo Area Starbucks union members that her direct supervisor had bragged about being sent to the Buffalo locations to help, quote, defeat the union effort. Harrison recorded a Zoom meeting with Starbucks managers, which was filled with anti-union talking points. She then provided this recording to the union members at the Buffalo locations. Harrison, 28 years old, was also recently diagnosed with leukemia in October of last year and had difficulties with getting any paid leave for her treatment. Starbucks advised her to take an unpaid leave of absence, which of course she couldn't afford. Then, after a bronchitis outbreak at her store, Harrison was forced to work while being sick. Shortly after the recorded meeting video was traced back to her and under pressure from management, Harrison decided to hand in her two weeks notice. However, when she did that, Starbucks apparently told Harrison that she was under investigation. And since, at the same time, she had handed in her notice, she was thereby terminated immediately. And her health insurance coverage was then canceled as well. Now, Harrison's co-workers at her Arizona Starbucks location have filed to vote for unionization. The backlash to the union efforts by companies often only fuels more workers wanting to join in. And this is what I mean. Companies hate when unions form because, of course, it costs them money, which they would much rather keep. And it causes the disruption of the chain of command that the company relies on. You know, you do what the person above you tells you to do all the way down the chain. Starbucks since the first inklings of unionization began, 
have apparently tried hard to push back by sending extra managers to potential union locations and indirectly turning up the heat, or by more directly holding anti-union meetings like they did at the Buffalo locations, where only the negatives are pointed out by corporate team members and almost no information is given to workers about their rights in the situation. At the same time, managers are often being shown instructional videos from the company advising them how to discourage union efforts. And when these managers are then speaking to their employees, they tiptoe carefully around saying directly that they are against union formation, but their intentions are pretty clear nevertheless. It's a wonderful little dance that goes on. And these tactics are very common. The union effort at Amazon, for example, has seen almost all of the same scenarios unfold. And this is because major companies hire large law firms who advise them on how to disrupt union efforts. And so they employ similar tactics from what could pretty much be described as a playbook for putting down unions. In Starbucks' case, they hired Littler Mendelssohn PC, the largest anti-union, or as they call it, union avoidance law firm in the United States, the same firm that has advised Amazon, Nissan, and Delta Airlines in their anti-union efforts. And in Memphis, Tennessee, just recently, seven of a Starbucks location's employees were fired for apparent safety and security violations. Not coincidentally, this is after union talk began at that store. Other employees say that the cause for these firings were flimsy at best and an enforcement of rules that were never enforced prior to that moment. One of those Memphis employees was apparently fired after signing a union card in the view of a security camera. You know, these days, big companies aren't hiring the Pinkerton agency to literally bust skulls over unions. Companies now respond in a much more mild way with teams of lawyers and PowerPoint presentations. But nevertheless, in ways that can ruin someone's life, someone already struggling to make ends meet is going to be seriously harmed by being fired just for seeking information or talking about what a union could do for them. It's less skull-busting and more passive-aggressive seminars that are clearly biased in favor of the company, or making pamphlets disappear, or filling up locations with outside managers who are there just to help out. And the company really doesn't do that great of a job of hiding their feelings. For one, the leaks from internal meetings where they don't beat around the bush, or even employees who describe the attitude in meetings with management. But then there's the company's own words. Remember the store I mentioned just before here in Victoria, BC, Canada that unionized? Well, when their union agreement was ratified in June of 2021, Starbucks released a statement which ended with this line, quote, We want all partners to love working at Starbucks and believe that our work environment, coupled with our outstanding compensation and benefits, make unions unnecessary at Starbucks, and that the best way to create an exceptional experience for partners is through an open and direct working relationship, end quote. But what is an open and direct working relationship without something legally binding to make that a reality? Companies can say anything they want, but without actually something backing it up, it's just a matter of them pretty much saying, trust us, which, I mean, big private sector companies, we know you really can't. So what does this early days of the Starbucks union effort mean? And what does it say about the current state of labor and its relationship with those massive private companies? Well, we're going to take a quick break here and hear some messages from some other podcasts that would love to have you stop by and give them a listen as well. So stick around. And when we come back, the historical context of all of this, and if the Starbucks unions are just the beginning of a generational shift in labor relations. 
All that and more coming up after the break here on Assorted Goods. Hello, Nerdverse. I am Omega. MSK. And yo, peace. And we are the host of Fanatically Correct. Podcast for your most novice of fans to your full-on deep-dive geeks. We're just three guys who really enjoy having a laid-back conversation about all things fandom. From dramatic stream series, classic TV shows, to blockbuster comic book adaptations, and classic film franchises. We have episodes covering current content from all platforms. And episodes on specific topics. Topics like Saturday morning cartoons, recording on a live local Comic-Con panel. And deep dives into directors like Tarantino and actors like Keanu Reeves and all things Billy Zane. And even a guest once in a blue moon. So check out our episodes available on all platforms or let us know if we're not on your preferred platform so we can be. You can reach us through our link tree at FanCorrect and reviews are always appreciated. So give us a listen and share in our love for video games, movies, television, animation, and so much more. Fanatically Correct, where the fans, the geeks, and the nerds are always correct. Did you know that the AIDS pandemic almost wiped out an entire generation of a culture? Did you know that politics drive the way we handle pandemics? Did you know that more people died of smallpox than war-related injuries in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars? Do you have questions about the opioid crisis? How socioeconomics fuel healthcare? Wonder why the cost of drugs is so high? I'm Jackie Moranti, and I host a podcast called Cause of Death. This show explores all of these questions and many more. If you haven't listened to my podcast, you should. Cause of Death can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. Our history is here to teach us lessons, but as you'll find out, we rarely learn our lessons. In 2009, while Barack Obama was president of the United States, a bill called the Employee Free Choice Act was proposed, which would have allowed workers to form unions simply by rounding up a majority of signatures in the workplace, a process referred to as a card check. Now, from the Wikipedia page for the EFCA, quote, the act would have first allowed a union to be certified as the official union to bargain with an employer if union officials could collect signatures of a majority of their workers. The bill would have removed the present right of the employer to demand an additional separate ballot when more than half of employees have already given their signature supporting the union. Second, the bill would have required employers and unions to enter binding arbitration to produce a collective agreement at least 120 days after a union is recognized. And third, the bill would have increased penalties on employers who discriminate against workers for union involvement. End quote. See, sometimes a Wikipedia page really is just straightforward. But all that stuff right there, you can just think about for a minute. The Employee Free Choice Act would have simplified and accelerated the process to get a union formed. And I know that sounds like a key piece of legislation that would have made worker organization much more straightforward. So it's not a shock that major corporations across the United States vehemently opposed the bill being passed which it never was after a strong political lobbying effort to oppose it. And we really should also remember that this is 2009. This was the middle of a global economic crisis where billions of dollars in bailout money were being handed out to big companies. And then those same companies, relying on that government assistance, 
then continued to lobby in order to torpedo any furthering of workers' rights at the same time. I get this story. Bernie Marcus, co-founder of Home Depot, was quoted when talking about the Employee Free Choice Act as saying that the bill was, quote, the demise of a civilization and that any retail company executive who hadn't spent money on the presidential election at that time in order to fight this bill, quote, should be shot, end quote. Remember, we're talking about a bill that would have empowered workers to form unions if they chose, made it a real easy process, and removed the ability of corporations to use disruptive tactics once a union movement began. It even outlined legal punishments for companies if they attempted to disrupt union efforts or punish workers unfairly for involvement. And this was about 12 years ago. And I mean, the demise of civilization, it's a little dramatic, isn't that? And shooting people who aren't against the bill? Well, that's a little bit more actually dramatic. So again, it's really not a surprise that the EFCA bill died after attempting to make its way through Congress a few times. It was heavily opposed by Republican lawmakers and almost universally opposed by business interests across the United States. The CEO of Starbucks, though, Howard Schultz, actually played a role in the outcome of the EFCA. Schultz attempted to meet both sides of the argument in a compromise, an alternative form of the EFCA that would have removed the simple form of voting that the bill proposed while keeping punishments for companies who disrupted union efforts. Schultz wanted to seem like he was for the union efforts, but suggested gutting the most important part of the bill. In a memoir published in 1999, Schultz apparently stated in regards to unions being formed at some early Starbucks locations that, quote, I was convinced that under my leadership, employees would have come to realize that I would listen to their concerns. If they had faith in me and my motives, they wouldn't even need a union, end quote. That's a good quote to remember considering that Howard Schultz actually tried to run for president about a year and a half ago and was more or less quickly laughed out of the race after entering. But nevertheless, the guy clearly believes that he's a natural leader. And I guess confidence is everything. But in 1987, Schultz and the company also managed to have a union of their workers decertified and dissolved after a campaign was launched amongst the employees to vote to end the union. The point being that Starbucks has been fighting against potential unionization efforts at their own stores for a long time. And the current situation that's unfolding is really just more of the same. But putting a plug in union formation is not surprising. The numbers in regards to union membership in America have been in steady decline for decades. In 1983, about 20% of American workers were in a union, a number that now sits at about 10%. And the bulk of American union membership remains in public sector jobs, with 36% of workers there belonging to unions. And on the flip side, only 7% of current private sector employees are union members. 7% of the people working in businesses that are more profit-focused, as opposed to 36% of the workers who are in more public service government jobs. Despite union membership declining in the United States, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, union members still earn 19% higher wages than non-union employees. That's the part that matters. I mean, we all know that a charming CEO can come around for a company and claim that they care about workers enough to make a difference. But really, there's just an issue with private sector companies and unions. I mean, believe it or not, it costs money to pay people more money. Wow. And then you have to deal with the union representatives and go through all the headaches and hoops of setting up the whole system that 
allows people to have a more dignified working experience. It's just so much easier if they would just shut up and listen to me instead. But, you know, that's the thing. It makes it harder to underpay people and it keeps wages lower because the market says so. Private sector vastly underpays people across the board. So when you line up your salary with somebody else in the same industry, you're probably comparing, well, crappy apples to crappy oranges, I guess. For-profit industries and workers' rights conflict all the time because of this. Whereas in the public sector, jobs usually have clearer budgets and clearer goals. There's not much of an emphasis on increasing the bottom line. I feel like I may be straying a little bit into the opinionated side of myself here, but I'll try to keep it on track again for you. I mean, look, there are a lot of reasons why union membership declined over the years in America. Mainly a decades-long chipping away at legal protections through political lobbying, and also there was that classic cultural sentiment that unions equate to socialism, which is pretty much communism and all that fun stuff that goes along with that classic piece of culture. But also there was the change, obviously, in technological abilities to manufacture goods and the shifting economic forces that decimated union-heavy industries. And in the United States especially, some areas of the country were actually never big with unions to begin with. Rates of membership were always low, and over time, that sentiment kept consistent nationwide union efforts from taking hold in any sort of meaningful way. Now, how union formation was weakened, though, was mainly just by making the process more difficult every step of the way, harder to spread the word, harder to hold a vote, harder to get people to participate in that vote, let alone convince them to vote in favor, and less protection from retaliation by employers. Unions became popular in the era of the Second World War when workers had the leverage to gain more for themselves. And in the decades after the war, all these forces and a lack of government action let the strength of union membership fade away, and here we are. America isn't alone, though, in this whole matter of union declines. Across the 38 member nations of the OECD, that is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, but you already knew that, of course, union membership fell from an average of 30% of workers in 1985 to 16% in 2019, again, about a 50% reduction overall. In that same time period, it's no secret that wages for workers across the board have stayed relatively the same, and that's happened despite decades of wild economic growth across the developed world. Where is all that money going? Thus creating the income inequality problem that we're all living with today. But hey, we've got a bunch of cool billionaires now to look up to, and I mean, isn't that the greatest gift of all? Now, despite union membership dropping globally, the sentiment towards unions is trending in the other direction, upwards, actually. A 2018 study by MIT found that 48% of non-union workers would join one if they could, a number that in the United States represents about 58 million workers, while in 2020, a Gallup poll found that 65% of Americans support labor unions in general. Those numbers, though, vary greatly based on political affiliation, which, I mean, is there any surprise there? Does anything these days not vary greatly based on political affiliation? But the surge is part of a new generation with a new outlook on labor organizations. And many of the Starbucks employees behind the current union effort appear to be from younger generations. My people, the young-ish people of the world. And then there's the pandemic. The exposure to a dangerous virus, the shaky and inconsistent amounts of hazard pay that some workers got in some industries while others didn't, the emphasis on the problem of sick leaves, and again, a general lack of not truly feeling valued as people. 
all of this is really only helping to boost the general support for unions even further. And although I'm referring to American numbers, the trends are similar across most of the wealthier nations of the world, as are the trends of income inequality and a rising cost of living. And research has shown that when union membership declines, wealth inequality gets worse, which isn't surprising, really. When we rely more on the trust us approach of big companies, again, they really don't come through. Workers need actual power to have a voice to create change and get something that's in writing. Now, get this the Nonprofit Economic Policy Institute, big fan right here, but they estimate that the past few decades with the erosion of union membership has accounted for a 13 to 20% growth in wealth inequality for female workers and a 33 to 37% of growth in inequality for male workers. And they estimate that working people are losing $200 billion a year due to the erosion of union protections and the collective bargaining process. It's also harder than ever to formulate a union, even if you do vote in favor of one. Back in the first half of the episode, we talked about how after a vote is successful, after all the disruptive tactics and the management pressure, if you manage to get through all of that, you then get to actually negotiate and attempt to draw up the legal fun stuff that becomes the collective agreement. But that negotiation process can take literally years. Between 2004 and 2021, amongst 330 union wins in the United States with National Labor Relations Board involvement, about half of them took over a year and a half to ratify a collective bargaining agreement between the union and the employer. And some took three or more years. This means that in that time period, nothing changes because there isn't anything official in place to be enforced, not to mention the final agreement is often a compromise between both sides, which, of course, it's supposed to be. But what gets lost in the sauce between the start and the end of that process is anyone's guess and, of course, depends on the situation. But despite all the doom and gloom I've given about the state of organized labor in America and around the world this episode, there does seem to be change coming. The COVID pandemic has absolutely changed the attitudes of workers that were praised as being essential in the early days of the pandemic. And to me, one of the many, many things of this pandemic that has struck me as being head shake worthy is the fact that the praise given to retail workers and healthcare workers seems to have worn off awfully fast. These workers are now still working long hours in stressful situations while being at risk of catching the virus all the while being mostly underpaid and, of course, underappreciated. Not to mention the subsection of the world now who actively despise these workers because of the enforcement of public health measures, but that's a separate issue entirely. You can see why so many working people are fed up and are seeking to protect themselves if nobody else will. So here we are. Decades of union membership declining, wages staying stagnant, cost of living going up and up, and inequality reaching dangerous levels. And right smack in the middle of it all is a multi-billion dollar coffeehouse chain with a growing number of workers who are taking steps to change their own destinies. I know, I really make it sound dramatic when I say it like that. And Starbucks workers aren't alone. Speaking of giant companies, Amazon is in the middle of trying really hard to stop a union from forming in their warehouses. Workers of businesses big and small all over North America are exploring the idea of a union. Here in Canada, workers at Indigo Bookstores, PetSmart pet supply stores, hotel workers, and clothing manufacturing plant workers. These are all examples of people who have unionized and caused the sentiment to spread out to other businesses. Union formation is currently a trend in digital media as well, and the video game industry. 
which honestly could have been another potential jump-off point for this episode. A younger generation with a more favorable attitude towards the concept of a union is moving into the workforce, and these days, it's easier than ever to spread a message with the internet. It does kind of seem like everything is lining up for this to be the start of a serious trend. Now look, this is where I found myself after researching this episode, that when you pull the lens back and look at the trends of the past few decades, it's really not surprising at all that workers are headed towards organizing again. This is a simple cause and effect, action and reaction kind of thing. The private sector businesses of the world, the ones with the C-suite managers and stock buybacks and investor meetings, the really big ones, you know who they are, sooner or later. They're going to have to answer to the people who actually do the work of their businesses. Wages cannot stay this low forever, especially not when the price of absolutely everything seems to keep skyrocketing with no end in sight, or when there is an increasing number of ridiculously wealthy individuals pretty much doing whatever they want while regular people are more and more shocked at their grocery bills. The formation of a union amongst Starbucks workers is just the jump off point for this episode, but it's a big story. And it really is an example of a bigger trend that appears to be gaining momentum. What goes up must come down. What goes down must eventually, I guess, float back on up again. The universe demands balance one way or the other. This episode may be out of date before long. Those 60 Starbucks locations may be hundreds within a few months. Or maybe the hired suits at the big law firms will earn their keep and crush the movement, allowing workers to rest easy knowing that Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz We'll step up to the plate and take care of them all. Aw, isn't it a nice thought? Look, I said early on that unions can be a touchy subject for some people, probably because it centers around pieces of everyday life that are serious. We're talking about people's livelihoods, their careers, their money, and therefore stability to provide for those closest to them. Not to mention the complicated history of worker organization, the threat of retaliation for those who choose to explore their options, it is a serious subject, and it has serious consequences. But personally, and maybe I'm old-fashioned, I'm only 30, so not really that old-fashioned, I guess, but really, I just have a hard time putting down people who just want to be heard and have some agency over what happens to them in their lives. I know, I know, it's far more complicated than that. That's what the previous 30-something minutes was all about. But at least that's their aim. You know what I mean? In the case of these Starbucks workers, their demands are pretty simple and straightforward, as they usually are for people in these situations. It's really not too much to ask to want a living wage without having to work three or four jobs, or to want to be able to take time off sick without risking being able to pay your rent, or even job-wise, to ensure that staff are properly trained, or that stores have the supplies they need to do their jobs. Basic stuff here, people. And it's stuff that helps the business run from any angle. Happier employees means better productivity. That's proven as well. But then there's that thing that happens all the time these days, you know, to even talk about workers' rights in any meaningful way on a big stage usually devolves into some sort of divisive political issue where the debate really becomes more abstract and really about political ideologies. Is this the start of a wave of union efforts that will come in the following decades? Yeah, probably. It's a good time to get into the anti-union lawyer business. You'd have plenty of clients looking for your services soon. Because really, without governments providing legal protections, making union formation easier, and punishing retaliation efforts by employers, the struggle will continue to just get the ball rolling. And remember what we were talking about before. 
these big money interests in the corporate world think it's an existential crisis to have worker rights protections passed at any sort of government level. It's the end of civilization. So you can see what kind of motivation they're backed with. It means nothing if there's nothing on paper. If there's no laws being passed to make the process friendlier for workers, then, well, I guess we know who's benefiting from the current decisions being made. It's an uphill climb to create better conditions for workers, and it always has been. But if an employer with as much of a reputation as Starbucks is in the news with employees not only talking union, but actually winning elections and moving into the negotiation process, well, it could be a watershed moment needed to spread that movement further. If it can happen at a Starbucks, it can happen anywhere. And after everything that working class people have been through in the last couple of years, it probably should happen. And to think it may have all started because of a few brave people getting together and taking the chance so that in the future, other people maybe won't have to struggle the same way they did. So more power to them. All right, that's it for this episode of Assorted Goods. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Unite and tell all your friends about the podcast and come back for the next episode. If you want to follow the show on the socials, you can follow me and Assorted Goods on Twitter and Instagram. The handle on both platforms is at Disinformed Dan. You can also visit the website, disinformed.ca, where you can find the show notes for each episode and a list of the sources used for the information in the episode. If you want to support Assorted Goods, all that I ask is that you hit the subscribe button on whichever app you choose to listen to. And if you want to email the show, you can reach me through the contact page on disinformed.ca or just email me at dan at disinformed.ca. The music for this episode was created and produced by my talented brother, David Felton. Thank you, brother, as always. And credit for the information used in this episode goes to the journalists, academics, writers, editors, and everyone involved in keeping people like me informed so that I can provide people like you with a quality show. Thank you for listening. Take care of each other out there, and I will see you next time here on Assorted Goods.